Congregation, the text for the sermon this morning is the last part of chapter 28 of Isaiah 28, uh, starting at verse 23 to the end of the chapter. And there we read the word of God as follows. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. So far the word of God for the text this morning. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, why do we have a special prayer for growth and labor for the coming season? Do the crops of the farmers here in the church grow faster and better than the crops of non-believing farmers? Does the work of believing laborers produce more and pay better than the work of non-believing laborers? Are the businesses of Christian businessmen more prosperous than those of non-Christian businessmen? You realize that's not necessarily the case, is it? So why a special prayer for growth and labor then here? Just out of custom or superstition, maybe? Let's hope not. <clears throat> you know that uh, you might have been in, in Quebec, uh, the province of Quebec out in the countryside where they have all these wayside crosses along the corners of many fields placed there to chase away evil spirits and to ensure blessing on those uh, crops in the fields. That's superstition, but you realize that prayer for blessing on growth and labor is not a kind of a magical ritual which is going to guarantee success for farmers and laborers. So why do we pray for blessing on growth and labor in particular then? Well, congregation, the main reason is that in doing this, we show our dependence on God. We, we show our dependence on him, that we, we trust in him. That he will work out everything as best for his world and for his people, as is best for, for his world and his people. That's what prayer for growth and labor is about. It's an expression of trust in God. And that's why we want to pray, we can pray, and we may pray. God is glorified when we pray to him and trust that he will do what is good for the world and for us. And with that in mind, I preach to you the text for this morning with this theme, you can work trusting God's work. We see two things in the text, what God shows us through the farmer, and secondly, what the farmer shows us about God. What God shows through the farmer first. <clears throat> the farmers here will 
most likely be able to identify with our text fairly easily this morning. It wonderfully pictures what takes place on a farm. Crops are grown. You see it all taking place, the farmer plowing his field, turning the furrows. You can almost smell the, the fresh earth being turned over by the plowshare, long straight furrows. But a farmer doesn't only plow and keep plowing. Wouldn't it be good if a farmer just kept plowing his field first one way, then the other, and then back again forever for a long time? Comes a, a time when he realizes, okay, now I have to disc it, harrow it, and sow this field. I can't do this forever, turn the soil forever. I have to sow it. That sowing of the field, the sowing of the seed, isn't going to take place willy-nilly either. No, the farmer sows seed with purpose and plan in mind. Just as he, he turns the soil, he knows the time it should take place, he has a purpose and a plan, so also, once the field is ready, he has a purpose and plan with the seeds and sowing. You can't grow the same crop in the same field year after year because otherwise you're going to deplete the soil of certain nutrients and you're going to give plant diseases time to get, get embedded in the, in the soil of that field. So the farmer will rotate his crops in his fields and some crops don't do well next to others while others are not affected and some crops produce better than others in a certain uh, place than, and, and in certain soils. And crop farmers have to calculate which crops they, they figure are going to sell better than others. They're going to sell their crops. So a lot of thought has to go into uh, sowing where and when and what a farmer is going to plant in each of his fields. And then not every crop is sown in the same way, even, or at the same time. You see something of all of this in our text. Black cumin is mentioned in verse 25. That was a flowering plant with tiny black seeds, contained aromatic oil used to make bread, such as rye bread, tastes good in the Middle East. And regular cumin was a spice used in a lot of foods. For instance, we know it today in this spiced Dutch cheese. That's cumin in there. Black and regular cumin were seeds that were scattered broadly over the field by hand. And wheat is mentioned in the text. We know what wheat is. It's the most common cereal grain grown in ancient Israel and also in the Western world today. In the text, it says that wheat is sown in rows. And this is how they did it in the, in the Middle East, in the in ancient Middle East. It was sown in, in rows through fields, not just randomly scattered throughout the whole field, but in rows for easier harvesting. And barley was mentioned. It was used to make coarse bread as, or as animal feed. And it was sown in smaller plots, spots on a farm which were harder to plow. The soil wasn't as good. You could sow barley there. 
And finally, the text mentions spelt, a coarse type of wheat, more widely grown in ancient times. You don't see it much today. Spelt doesn't need good soil and often sown around the edges of the field where the soil is less fertile. And all these seeds were planted at optimum times for germination, which meant that each seed had to be sown at a different time in the spring. So you see, each type of seed sown in different methods, places, and times, and the farmer had to know what he was doing. And he learned over centuries which methods, times, and places were the best for which seeds. Farmers also discussed that with each other. They learned from each other how to come to the best possible harvest, make the best conditions for a harvest. And that then brings us to the harvest mentioned in the text. The harvest of all those plantings requires quite different approaches to each type of plant too. Black cumin was brought to the threshing floor. Those plants were bought, brought to the threshing floor and they were laid out in piles on the threshing floor and beaten with a stick to beat out those seeds whole. And regular cumin would be beaten out with a thicker rod to separate the seeds from the plants. If you threshed it by means of wheel, a wheel or a sledge, the delicate seeds would be crushed and nothing would be left of the harvest anymore. Wheat, on the other hand, was threshed with a sledge or with a cart with special wheels pulled back and forth over the, the wheat stalks with, a, with an ox. The grains of wheat or barley would stay whole in this process because as those heavy sledges were drawn over the layer of straw and, and the ears of grain, they would rub out the grain and the wheat or barley grains by their shape and weight would sink through the straw and escape being crushed. The thing is you couldn't run over the wheat or the barley with a sledge or a wagon too long either or the grains would be broken up and the flour would be lost. No one would be able to grind the grain for flour anymore. So, you see, each crop dealt with differently. Not only when planted, also when harvested and threshed. And this is not only true for farmers in ancient times, it also counts for today, even with all the modern methods and machinery which the farmers use today. They have to know what they're doing. Each crop has to be dealt with in its own way. And how does a farmer know what to do as far as planting and threshing goes? Well, the text says in verse 26, for he, God, instructs him, the farmer, in right judgment. His God teaches him. That's how he knows. I think a lot of people would find that a kind of a strange statement if it comes down to it. If you'd ask the average person on the street, how does a farmer know what, how, and when to sow and to harvest, you'd get different response to that question, right? How does a farmer know which methods and machines to use to plant and harvest his crops? I think most people would say that that knowledge is gained from research and from reading. And today, most farmers follow courses of study in an agricultural college or so. And then they also learn from each other and from reading agriculture magazines and books. And so they stay abreast of the newest findings about the crops they want to grow. 
the sprays and the fertilizers they use. And in Isaiah's days, people might have said, well, a farmer knows what to do because he was taught by his father, and his father was taught by his father, and so on. The knowledge about sowing and harvesting crops passed on from father to son through the generations. That's just part of the picture, though. Not all that is just part of the picture. That's not ultimately where all the knowledge of how to farm comes from. If you think about it, all knowledge that we have is gained by observation. If you followed the knowledge of crop farming all the way back to the beginning, you'd come to the point where someone first came up with the idea of growing wheat. They discovered the plant, they found out it could be eaten even ground up to make flour, and through observation, they figured out how best to grow wheat by preparing the ground, and they discovered by trial and observation how best to thresh out the grains of wheat. They all gained that knowledge through observing creation. And so via that observation, they were being instructed by God himself. Yes, by God himself, because he made everything in the first place. He structured everything. He put structure and pattern and laws into everything he created. If God had not done that in his wisdom, we would not have been able to come up to real practical knowledge of how to live and work in this world, not only in farming, but in every field of life, in every kind of job, too. And not only that, knowledge in a certain field of work comes from God, from observing the patterns and structure he has laid in creation, but he's also the one who gives people the ability to learn and discern, to take this, this in, to observe and to learn from what they're observing. You also need to have the desire and the ability to be a farmer or a mechanic or a welder or a carpenter or landscaper or accountant or healthcare worker, or teacher, all your knowledge, all your ability as student, or worker, or homemaker, or farmer, comes from the Lord, ultimately comes from Him. He is the source of it all. And it's good to think about that at times, and to be thankful for what He has given you, the abilities, the knowledge, and for what he has given mankind so that we can produce the food we need for the population of our country and the world. That comes from God. We come to the second point of the sermon this morning, what the farmer shows us about God. Okay, so we thought about how the farmer works and what that teaches us about God as the ultimate source of our knowledge about our own work. But there's more to that so-called parable of the farmer in our text. In particular, congregation, this parable teaches us about how God himself works in our lives and in this world. From the context, you will have noticed that the story of the farmer stands at the end of a chapter full of warnings and judgments of God against the people of Ephraim and Jerusalem who had forsaken him, who were ignoring him, you see a lot of drunkenness in, the, in there, too. They did not believe. They did not believe that God would punish them as he had said he would, that he was able to bring about what he had threatened to do against them. Destruction and death? 
they, they mocked him for that. They said they had already made a covenant with death and Sheol. So the Lord wouldn't be able to destroy them. They mocked the Lord God and his prophet, as it says in verse 22, just before the text. Mocking scorn. And that's sometimes, for instance, the reaction of people from a city, for instance, who know nothing about farmer, farming, who see a farmer at work in his field, but who don't know anything about what he's doing there. They see him plowing his land and harrowing it, and they figure he's wasting a lot of time and effort, or he's doing it forever, and why doesn't he sow it now? And then they sow, see him sowing one kind of seed in one way and another seed in another and at different times, and they figure he's doing things kind of haphazardly. If you don't know anything about farming, you see a farmer at work, you, you think, what in the world is he doing? Why can't he just plant the same seed in the same field year after year? Just making more work for himself, rotating crops and leaving now this and that field fallow. People who don't know about farming see a farmer at work and they don't see any reason or rhyme to the way he's doing things. They figure it's all just arbitrary what he's doing. And you realize that a person like that is criticizing something he doesn't know a thing about. That the farmer and every tradesperson knows what he's doing. He's learned that from, from God, as we mentioned before, and from also his experience, from his learning. He knows how, to, how best to do his or her job. People who don't know anything about your work are not going to be able to figure out why you do it the way you do. But you know... You learn from others over time and ultimately from God. You work systematically, methodically. That's how it is with the Lord God himself, congregation. What he does, he does in his way and his time, and he knows what he's doing because he is the ultimate source of knowledge and understanding. He is the creator. We could say God is the ultimate tradesman. He chooses certain people out of a fallen mankind to be his own people. And there are people today who question that whole thing. Does he know what he's doing? Is he doing things right? Yes, he does. And he treats one person differently than the other. The one person has to deal with this in his life. The other with something else in her life. Why is that? God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. The one has success in his or her work and ends up with a thriving business or succeeds in his or her studies and passes the courses with flying colors. And the other working just as hard struggles with financial setbacks, has a difficult time with studies. The one experiences accomplishments, the other has to cope with disappointments. And why is that? Why does that happen? Why does God let things unfold that way for each and every one? Differently. At different times. And often when we think, we don't need this. See, you can look around you what goes on in unbelief, and you can mock God, as a lot of people of Ephraim and Jerusalem were doing in Isaiah's days, and people today do too, 
to mock God, and you'll say that God is unable to work out things properly in this world and in people's lives. He doesn't know what he's doing if he's in control. Or you say you can't believe that he really has a purpose with everything he's doing in people's lives. If God is supposed to be working everything for my good, he sure doesn't know the methods he needs to accomplish that. And then, and then you say you believe in him, but in the meantime, you're just doing whatever you please because you don't believe he's actually in control and he actually has the wisdom to know what he's doing. And if you think like that, you're being just as foolish as somebody who doesn't know anything about farming, criticizing the farmer for how he prepares his fields and sows and how he harvests and threshes. No, the farmer's work shows us how God works. That's why he puts that in the Bible there. Yes, God plows deep furrows in people's lives. And sometimes you think he turns your life completely upside down and why don't you stop, Lord, turning my life upside down? And then he sows different kinds of seed in your life. And sometimes you wonder, why does this have to come into my life now? Just when I can't really deal with it. And then, those, then, then there are seeds that... that, that those seeds have to die before they can bear fruit in your life. You have to let go of things or people you hold very dear. Why, Lord? And sometimes you experience things in your life as blows with a stick or a flail. It's as if you're being threshed, brutally threshed. That's how the people of Ephraim and Jerusalem were going to experience God's chastisements like the blows of a rod are being pressed down with a threshing sledge. But God's purpose with those things is never to destroy, but he wants to come to a harvest. And like a farmer, he doesn't thresh forever or there would be nothing left of us. No, he threshes only so long so that there may be a good harvest in the end. He only threshes to get rid of the bad stuff, the chaff. And for some, that might require a different approach than others. Just as a farmer doesn't thresh cumin the same way he threshes wheat. But the farmer knows what he's doing, and God knows what he's doing. What God works in each one's life is different too, right? The one is treated like this, the other like that. God doesn't treat us all exactly the same. And his times are so different with each one of us too. Why this in my life now and not in that person's life? Why does that family have to deal with that difficulty and only good things seem to happen to another family? God's work is different with everybody. But God is in complete control. And he's a trademan. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's, he has all the wisdom. And if we, even if we sometimes doubt 
that he has that wisdom. And he works systematically. God works systematically, methodically, and purposefully. Like a pl farmer plowing, seeding, harvesting, threshing. He does everything he does for a reason. And you can be sure that he has a plan and a purpose and he's working everything out according to his infinite wisdom. And for the good of his people. Congregation, knowing that can comfort and encourage us as we look ahead to another season of growth and, and to our daily work over the summer season. We don't know what this season is going to bring, right? Will the farmers enjoy a good season of growth or will it be a summer of too much rain or too little? Or too hot, too cool? Will our work prosper? Will the economy go and, and, and will our work prosper or, or will we lose our job? Will we have to do with less? Maybe a lot less. Will we stay healthy? Or will we have to deal with sickness? Will things work out for us or not? And then we can end up questioning how things have turned out for us in the end. Why? Why did it have to go this way, Lord? And why now? But always remember the parable of the farmer in the text, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. God is like that farmer in the field or the farmer at the harvest and at the threshing floor. He knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. We can trust him. He's working everything out according to a plan. You can count on that. You just don't see it because you're not as wise and knowledgeable as him. You don't know what he knows. And he's a tradesman who knows exactly what to do and when to do it in order to get the best results. He knows that for your life and my life, this and that and that are needed. And we might question why, but he knows. And you know the result he wants to achieve with your life too, don't you? He wants the best for you. He wants ultimately your eternal salvation. He wants to work holiness for you, but ultimately your eternal salvation because you belong to Jesus Christ, his son. Maybe sometimes you think it's as if God is trying to destroy me, as if God doesn't know when to quit with me. It's taking too long, Lord. But then you need to think of your Savior who was completely threshed, who was beaten down under God's righteous wrath in our place. The threshing sledge of God's anger against our sins was drawn over him and completely pressed the life out of him till there was nothing left of God's anger against our sins anymore. And if we look to him, congregation, to Jesus Christ, then we can always trust that God is threshing us out, threshing us with measure and wisdom and not to destroy us but so that there might be a harvest of righteousness in our lives. Congregation, the growing season is about to begin and farmers are going to be are out in their fields already too. I've seen them out in the fields. They're going to be there sowing with system and purpose and with the goal of being able to harvest in the fall and workers are going out to the job 
same purpose, hoping to be able to earn a decent living. Let's all do our work and task in life, realizing that it is God who gives us the ability to do what we do. And whatever happens, whatever the results of all our efforts, know that God is at work in us too, methodically and purposefully, in everything he works to ensure that Christ lives in us and that we're ready for that great harvest in the end of time. So work, trusting in God's work. Everything comes from him. And that's why it's good to pray for his blessing too and to look to him. Amen. Congregation, let us pray. Merciful Father in heaven, we thank you for showing us through the farmer's work of sowing and harvesting that you work with purpose and method in this world and in our own lives too. We admit we sometimes wonder whether you know what you're doing when we experience hardship in our lives and difficulties also in our families and we sometimes wonder too whether you're really working with purpose in this world in which there is so much confusion and tension in political matters and so many worries economically and in which the money seems to be the, in the hands of so few while so many live in need and even in abject poverty. How can you allow those things, we wonder? But we thank you for assuring us in your word. You know what you're doing. And we can do our task trusting in you. You've shown it over time. And you've shown it especially in your son, Jesus Christ, who was the stone who was rejected but turned out to be the chief cornerstone. Help us always to keep that trust in you in our hearts, we pray. Amen.